Hey, we're playing down at Bear Creek Baptist Church last night down in Osceola, and uh, as they go a couple of times a year down there, and that's always a great time, but uh, good to have them back, good to have them playing this morning. If you have your Bibles, <clears throat> I'd like you to turn to Proverbs chapter 12 again, and again, we're just kind of moving through the book of Proverbs here, and this chapter 12 has been an incredible chapter, and um, we're going to look at verses 17, 18, and 19 today. And again today, uh, we're going to see uh, the reference that has been the theme of this chapter of what really comes out of our mouth. But you're going to see it with a little different twist today. Uh, You know, I don't think, and I think we take for granted many, many times and don't understand the importance of our words, the things that we say. Words are very powerful. Uh, They're the power to, if they're used in the right way, and there's a, a power if they're used in the wrong way. You know, words can be used to either destroy somebody or it can uh, lift up somebody or it can uh, knock somebody down. They're they're very powerful. And, you know, the words in any language, uh, uh, the words themselves are not bad, but it's the attitude of heart and how they're used uh, that will uh, make them uh, bad in a a biblical sense. Hence, you find uh, the word lips a lot in the book of Proverbs, and the lips are what is used to form those words. And today I want to I read here these verses. We'll pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 12, and it says, He that speaketh truth showeth forth righteousness, but a false witness deceit. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. The lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Now, Father, we ask your blessings upon our time today in your word, and we ask you to open up the scriptures, open up our hearts, and may we see all that you have for us today and learn from uh, this great passage uh, as we continue through this great book. And we'll be careful to give you all the honor and the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Now, these three verses here are some very powerful verses. And the application, you know, uh, as we get into this, is going to take us much farther than just your average everyday life and the things that you deal with. And uh, you're going to see that when you put them into a proper context, it'll really take our study of the lips, the mouth, uh, the fruit of our lips, the transgression that comes out of our mouth to a, to a very new level. And in verse uh, 17, it says, He that speaketh truth showeth forth righteousness, but a false witness deceit. Now, I want to break this verse down as we always break the verses down, and uh, I want to break it down around its natural uh, breakdown here, uh, the little word but. The little word but is a conjunction. And the conjunction in English language does many things, but one of the main things it does, it, it shows us a contrast. It contrasts the first part of what you read to the last part of what you read. And they're very important in the Bible, and Proverbs is really uh, filled with them. Uh, And it says, He that speaketh truth showeth forth righteousness. Now, that's the first part of the verse. Now, this verse, when you begin to study the book of Proverbs, it'll go along with Proverbs 11.30, Proverbs 12.18, 12.22, and 14.25. And you'll find that it has a a soul-winning application to it. A speaking truth to show for righteousness. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but anytime you find the word righteousness in the Bible, anytime at all, it's going to be a reference to Jesus Christ. When you got righteous, you got righteous because you got his righteousness. 
And the only righteous person and the only righteousness in this world is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You want to remember that. And uh, this is talking about using our lips and word to show uh, a lost world God's righteousness, which, as I said, is Jesus Christ. You know, the lips, as we talked about, that's the forming of words. The words themselves, that carries the truth or the message, whether it be truth or false. And the mouth, that's the uh, communication with words uh, that are formed by the lips. So you find those three used in the book of Proverbs all the time. And along with verse 17, in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 25, it says this, A true witness delivereth souls, but a deceitful witness speaketh lies. You ever notice how when Christ talked through the Scriptures, and most people don't even pay attention to this, you realize that not one time in the Bible that he ever referenced the original manuscripts to anything? We make so much to do about that today. And I, I tell people all the time that one of the things when it comes to the Bible you never want to do, you always want to emphasize the things that God emphasizes, but you never want to emphasize too much the things that he doesn't emphasize. And today we live in a world, that a Christian world anyhow, this is all about the originals, the original, the original Greek, the original Hebrew, the original manuscripts. And yet when you just come back to the Bible, you'll find that never one time did he ever refer to the original manuscripts. You never, in what he's saying, you never see him say, well, the original Hebrew text or in the New Testament, the original Greek text. Not one time. Uh, Any time or place in the Bible where he talks about the Bible or what he said, he simply uses the word words. Just that simple. John 8.31 says, if you continue in my words, then you are my disciple indeed. Not the original manuscripts. He says, my words. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them from thy word, for thy word is truth. You've got a whole Christianity today that thinks that the only real truth of God's word is found in the originals that somebody's, you know, once upon a time had. And of course, that's not true. The Bible says that it's in his word. John chapter 14, verse 23 says, If a man love me, he'll keep my words. You know, now, that's a real problem if you're a guy who believes that you don't have them. And then John eight forty seven says, He that if God heareth God's words, and ye therefore hear them not, because you're not a God. It's always the words. It's always the words. The importance of words. You know, that's because the power of the simple words of the Bible are the life that God gives us. John 1, 4 says that he was life, and the life was the light of, light of men. John 6.63 says, The words I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. You know, and, I, and most people, as I said, they don't think this through. But you know why they're, if you, I have the original Greek this morning here, or the original Hebrew here this morning, you know why it will be absolutely useless? Three basic reasons. First of all, the Greek or the Hebrew is absolutely useless because nobody's ever had them. They've never been in existence in one book. Nobody ever had them for any length of time in any way, shape, or form. The second reason they would be worthless is that you can't even read them today because they don't exist. And the third, and to me the most important why they're worthless, is down through the history of the world, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Not one person ever got saved from them. And that based on that, it's really, uh, you know, how uh, the only good, therefore, is for somebody to puff themselves up with it. 
But as far as from a practical application, they just don't work. You talk about being a fool in the book of Proverbs. I say, well, I study the original Greek and the Hebrew. Really? Well, I'll tell you something, pal. Come on down to 18th and Cherry today, or go out on Will's team, or go out on Darren's team, or go down to the library and bring your New Testament, Greek New Testament, and try to win somebody to Christ with it. You know why you think that way? You think that way because in most cases, you never won a soul to Christ in the last 40 years of your life. And if you ever have won a soul to Christ, you know what you got to do? You got to use the very words that I'm talking about today that you think are inferior to the original manuscripts that you think is everything. You don't only study the Greek, you're a geek. (laughs) Those words are life, they're light. The power of the words of God. You know, in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, there's a passage there that a lot of people have a tough time with. He says, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Over the years, I've had a lot of questions with young Christians about that. And they'll say, well, I don't understand that verse. How, how, what does that mean? How do, you, how do you have the power to bind somebody or loose somebody of their sins? Well, you uh, on your own don't have that power. But when you get saved and the Holy Spirit of God is in you and you have the Word of God in your life, which is power, now you have the ability to either remit sins or bind somebody with their sins. I'll show you what I mean. You sit down with somebody and they know they're a sinner and they want to get saved. You don't save them. You take the Word of God, the words which are life, you open up that book, you show them what Christ did, and through the Word of God, when they get saved, you have now loosed them from their sin. And whenever you loose down here, loosed up in heaven. You sit down with somebody, and they know they're a sinner, and you try to win them to Christ and show them all that Christ did, and they reject it, and they walk away and never trust Christ, you, through the Word of God now, giving them the witness, talking about God's righteousness, you have now just bound them to their sin through the Word of God. I've taught you before that when we hit Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30, and we laid out that great uh, 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 passage on soul winning, I took you back to the probably the greatest soul winning chapter in all the Bible, Acts chapter 8, the story of Philip, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And I remember telling you back there that the whole key to putting forth God's righteousness and using your lips and your words to tell people about Christ is simply letting God prepare you. I showed you back there in that great story that God had a prepared sinner. That was the Ethiopian eunuch. And God had a prepared servant. That was the Philip. And God's spirit got the two of them together. And uh, when you come down through there and study it, and when Philip, when he won that man to Christ, You know what he did? He started right with the scriptures that that man had. That wasn't the originals. The originals were not scripture. You mean to tell me that that Ethiopian eunuch had the original copy of Isaiah 53 when Philip hooked up with him? He had a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy that probably for the last six, seven hundred years had been copied. But the words were powerful and the Bible says there were scriptures. Now the true New Testament born again witness for Christ will fulfill two great passages in the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms is a great, is a great book on, on the words of God. And Psalms 119 is probably the greatest chapter in the Bible on the, on the words in the Bible. But in, and in Psalms 35, 28, it says, And my tongue shall speak of thy righteousness. And that righteousness is Jesus Christ. And, and, and of thy praise all the day long. 
The other one is in Psalms 40, verses 9 through 10. It says, I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Now, the thought behind those two verses is simple. With the words of my mouth, with the lips forming those words, and the speech that is the communication, our job is to declare God's righteousness to a lost world. That's what we're to do. I got a little, in my Bible, I got a little note uh, down there by Psalms 40, verses 9 and 10, and I simply says this, God didn't hide his righteousness from me. Why should I hide it from him? And that's our job is to put it out, declare God's righteousness. And when you and I speak of God's righteousness, we speak of, of, of only one authoritative, absolute, eternal, infallible standard. And that'll be the Word of God. The fact that we got God's righteousness as a guilty, how-bound sinner through the death of Christ on that cross and got saved by those words. I cannot today tell you how important the power of words are. And when you and I talk about the power of words and the things that, uh, that uh, we say, it's either going to have a positive effect or a negative effect. There's people that all their lives have a negative effect on everybody that's around them simply by the words that come out of their mouth. And then there's other people who have a positive effect on everybody around them simply because of the words that come out of their mouth. And uh, uh, the Bible says that when you and I declare God's righteousness, when we got it, as a guilty, hell-bound sinner through the death of Christ on that cross, and we got saved by those words and we're supposed to put it out. The Bible says, through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, Colossians 1.14. And verse 17 says, he that speaketh truth showeth forth righteousness. That's what a soul winner does. That's what a Christian is supposed to do. Now, when a Christian speaks truth, when a Christian declares God's righteousness, you will find five things in his life that go along with that. They're found right in this chapter here. If you look at them and look underneath the surface here. The first thing you'll find that he is a, he's a faithful messenger. The job of you and I is to declare the gospel. Sadly, most Christians today don't even know where the gospel's found or even know what it is. They think the gospel's Jesus or the gospel's salvation or the gospel's the Bible. Well, all those things are certainly important, but they're not the gospel in itself. The definitive passage on the gospel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> it lays out the gospel. <clears throat> and it says, Paul says, Therefore I delivered unto you first of all that which I have received, <clears throat> how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and how that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, that's the gospel. The gospel is the fact that Christ came down and died and then was buried, and then on the third day he rose again, notice, according to the Scriptures. Not the original manuscripts. The Scriptures. He's faithful in what he's done. The faithful messenger. The faithful messenger will be faithful in that mandate. He'll take the Word of God that God has given him, and through his lips and through his mouth he'll declare the faithful message of God's righteousness. The second thing, he carries the message. He doesn't send somebody else in his place. Back in 2 Kings chapter 4, there's a great, great story uh, that illustrates 
how a, a person really gets saved, and it's a great Old Testament example of New Testament soul winning. The story's built around Elisha. Elisha is the man of God, and we have a woman in this story who has a son who was born. He grows up to be, oh, I don't know, uh, probably a teenager, and then one day he just dies. And she knows that the power of God can resurrect her son. So she sends for the man of God. Now that story, as you read it, is a picture on how to give life to dead men. Now we know in the Bible that a dead man is a picture of an unsaved person. An unsaved person who was dead in trespasses of sin. And that boy back there represents an unsaved person. His mother wants to get him saved. So his mother sends for the man of God to come in and to literally, in the story, raise him back to life. But in our illustration, spiritually, it's a picture of somebody getting saved. And Elisha, just like so many of God's people, when the messenger shows up and says, this boy is dead, he needs the man of God to come and give him life. You know what he does? He does what most of God's people does today. He sends somebody else in his place to try to raise this dead kid. And you know what? Dead kid can't get raised by somebody else. That's a great illustration. The whole story is a great story. It goes on and shows you the actual thing and uh, how he, he, he brings light to that person. Incredible picture on soul winning. But the thing that I want to focus on this morning is simply is the fact that, you know what? When God has called you to do something, when God has given you the mandate to put forth his righteousness, when God has put it in your heart, the same spirit of God that's in my heart or somebody else's heart uh, that goes out and wins people to Christ, you cannot send somebody else to do what God's called you to do. Amen. You know, in churches where, and I've seen this all my life, there's churches that are good churches, and they've got people in it that are good people. And they'll have a, you know, have a missions program, or they'll have somebody that's a needy family, or they'll have something that they're trying to do, and they will have people that will give, give money unbelievably to missions. They'll give money to churches. They'll give money to the poor. They'll give money to this. They'll give that. They'll donate anything that needs, but they'll never do one thing themselves. You know why they're so benevolent with all that they have and give us as they do? Because they think that excuses them from going out and doing it themselves. And it does not. Nothing, nothing takes the place of being a faithful messenger who carries the message. You don't send somebody else. You go and do and take the message that God has given you. You can never send somebody else to do what God has called you to do. Then the third thing is he delivers it in person, one-on-one. -on -one. Getting involved with that person, building a relationship, and, uh, and then earning the right to tell him uh, the uh, a precious story of the Lord Jesus Christ. This last Wednesday night, we had our meeting of the uh, few, the foundation of exceptional warriors. And uh, I, I told you Thursday night, I don't know who was paying attention. There was about eight or nine people that they had, and we had about 30-some people there. And it was a great night. We got a clear presentation of what's going on. Uh, we got everybody that wanted to divide it up, and other people will fall in as we move this thing through. It's going to be a once-a-month meeting. But, and I don't know, and I stole this Thursday night. I, I don't know how many of you saw it or not, but in that crowd right there, I could see there was four guys who were just ripe for the picking right there. 
Four men who, who came with the best intentions. Four men who probably, if we do our job down the line, uh, will get saved at some point. Four men who, and their, I didn't even count their wives, four men that uh, probably do not even know they need Christ as their own Savior. But last Wednesday night was just the impetus. It was just the beginning. It was just the absolutely Holy Spirit of God in a very mellow way, knocking on the heart door of their heart. And you know what? When they talked about the fact that our church is going to do all the counseling and develop the hotline and be able to be the source that all these veterans that go through all their struggles deal with, uh, afterwards, uh, two of them came up. And uh, both of them said to me, you know what? And now keep in mind, one of them is probably lost as can be. The other one is probably saved. And they come up to me and he said, you know what? He says, I want to help you. I want to be part of that. The guy who is lost probably has an incredible group already that he works with that suffers through all these things that he's been working through with the VA. The VA won't do anything for him. And he simply said, you know what? I want to bring those in here and have some classes where you guys can teach them and give them what they're not getting and what they need. He said that clear as a bell, not understanding that he needed it too. But that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. You deliver the message in person. One of the other guys, the guy and his wife that came in on a motorcycle, he got me afterwards and he pulled me aside and he says, you know what? He says, I'm really confused about the world that we live in. He says, I don't understand what's going on. It's the most confusing thing in the world to me. And I talked with him and I said, you know what? It's confusing to me too. And I said, you know, when we get into this and we start to develop some things, I said, together we can, we can maybe come to some answers. There's some things I'd like to show you. And you can help me understand it a little better from where you're coming from. And I can help you understand it where I'm coming from. That was the beginning. That night was the very beginning of that man's walk to find Christ as his own personal Savior. And he don't even know it. He don't even know. He's just confused. I'm confused. We're all confused. The world's a very confusing place. But you have to be a faithful messenger. You have to carry the message. You can't send somebody else. And you've got to deliver it in person. You've got to be willing to invest your life in that person to be able to get the chance to tell him about Christ. I talked to a guy on the phone yesterday that, that Chris gave me that night that called in and is going through some tremendous hard times. And I just talked to him very briefly. He was in the middle of something, but he wants me to call him back Monday. And it's probably somebody that when I talk to him that I'd like to send a couple of you guys over just to visit with him, spend a little time with him, listen to him, and uh, just bring him along. Uh, he's got some medical issues. He's obviously got some scars in his life. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where just to help him get to the point where uh, what he really needs. And I, I told you Thursday night, everybody in the world thinks they have their problem is this. And I'm not saying that their problem isn't that. But I am saying that the real problem is not that. The real problem is they need Christ. And many, many, many times, and you know it's true in your life and my life, God will focus, let us focus on the problem that's really not the problem, but use that as a corridor to get us to a place to see what the real problem is. The fourth one. He delivers the message intact as he received it. You never get creative with a simple plan of salvation. 
man likes to take something as basic and simple as salvation and make it as complex and complicated as he can. That's what human nature does. He takes with the simplest things of God, like the Bible. The Bible probably looks like an intimidating book, honestly. The Bible is probably the easiest book in the world to learn if you just follow the simplicity of the way it lays itself out. What makes it so intimidating and so hard is when man gets his hooks into it. He makes it complicated. He takes it to levels that God never intended for it to go to to try to, to try to, he takes the hard route every time. And of course, that's the, that's the problem. And uh, when you show forth Christ and who his righteousness is, you don't have to get creative about it. You just follow the simple thing. I always tell people, uh, people say to me, well, you know, I want to do this, but I'm not sure if I understand uh, how to, uh, to get into something that maybe I'm not prepared for or, or have to get a question asked to me that I'm not ready to answer, and I don't, I'm a little worried about that. I always give them the same advice. In situations where you're going in to do something for God, here's the simple plan. Stick with what you do know. Amen. Just stick with what you do know. Don't try to get creative. Don't try to get outside the box. Just stick with what you do know. You will be surprised how much you already have that when the Holy Spirit of God starts tapping into that resource, you'll be surprised what you'll say and what you'll do. So this first one was, he's a faithful messenger. Second one, he carries the message himself. He delivers it in person was number three. Number four, he delivers it intact as he received it. And number five is the fact that he learned to disregard the consequences of delivering the message. Christ paid a price for you to have your salvation. You will pay a price for putting out and declaring that righteousness. We live in a world that hates Christ, hates God, hates the Bible and everything about it. We live in a world that has absolutely no use for Christ and Christianity. We live in a country that is no longer Christian. We live in a country that no longer cares about the things of God. We live in a country, we see families that are broken and busted and messed up simply because of the fact that, that nobody cares anymore about truth, righteousness. And when you take that stand, it raises you up above the crowd. It raises you up above the common person. Not in a prideful way, but in an illuminating way. You're the light now in the darkness. You're the city on a hill that cannot be hid. And when you start to declare God's righteousness through your mouth, through your lips, it elevates you to a point that God allows people to see that light. Not everybody is going to appreciate that light. Not everybody is going to like it. It's going to some people that it's going to cost you something to proclaim Christ's righteousness because it costs God something for our salvation. Most of God's people are good people. I mean, you find some really weird, bad people, but the majority of them are good people. They really are. The majority of them, I believe, try to do the best they can with what they have. Their major flaw is simply this. They want a Christianity without any discomfort. They want a Christianity that just, they love God, they love the Bible. As long as you don't rock their little boat and rock their little world, they're fine. They think of Christianity as something that gets along with everybody. and reality, Christianity is something that outside brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't usually get along with anybody. And they, can't, they don't like that. And so they, they completely misunderstand the consequences of delivering the message. And that's why they don't do it. They'll go up to a part, point as long as it's comfortable. 
But stepping out of that comfort zone, oh, it's the hardest thing for somebody to do. And I watch it in some of you as you approach that point, you know, and you, you, you worry about it, you look at it, you fear it, and then pretty soon you step over the line and you're into it and you realize that it wasn't no big deal and it's a lot more fun when you get into it. It's a lot more fun on the other side making people mad than it is over here trying to run around and keep everybody happy. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, you know what that verse says? That verse says that every saved man, every saved woman, ought to be a preacher. Pete, we think that preachers and pastors are one of the same. And that's not true. God may have never called all of you to pastor. He certainly never called a woman to pastor. But he doesn't always call a man to pastor. But I can say this on the authority of the Word of God. Every man and woman in here is called to be a preacher. Because preaching is nothing more than declaring God's righteousness. I go back to Acts chapter 8. When Philip was at that Ethiopian eunuch and they pulled into that chariot. And Philip goes over and says, hey, you understand what you're reading there, pal? And he says, how can I except man should guide me? And the Bible says that he, he, he desired Philip to come up and sit with him in that chariot. You know, don't you know if you could go back in time and just pan up on that? That would be a great thing to see. That old boy coming through that, uh, that old chariot had that old Isaiah 53 tucked in his jacket pocket someplace that he had gotten. I'd always like to know where he got it. Yeah. Things like that in the Bible intrigue me. You know, there's a lot of, you know why God doesn't always tell you uh, where it, those things come from? I'll tell you why. Because in your life and my life, the Bible says God's word doesn't return void. I don't know where that portion of Isaiah 53 came from, but I know ultimately it came from God. God had somebody leave a tract here, put this here, put this over here. And the guy said, you know what? Hey, I, I've seen people who have, uh, who have cleaned out their house and I've seen them take tracks that they thought were outdated or tracks that they thought were no good or maybe the covers were off of them. I've actually seen them throw them away. And I've seen when a garbage guy come by or a trash guy come by, they pick them up. I've actually seen out there where the guy just reading that thing. God knows what he's doing. And when they finally get together, Philip sees he's reading Isaiah chapter 53, which is the prophetic about Christ and the blood atonement. And he opens up that thing, and the Bible says that he opened up at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Now, I want to tell you what Philip didn't do. Philip didn't say, okay, now, you got that. Uh, I need a pulpit. Uh, let's get a pulpit here. And uh, let's see, we need, uh, we need, we don't have a piano, uh, we need, uh, uh, we don't have a choir, uh, but uh, we need to take up an offering here and we'll get this all done. And, uh, and he didn't. The Bible says that preaching has nothing to do with the church service, though church service should be about preaching. But preaching is nothing more than declaring forth God's righteousness. And if you're saved this morning and you're here under the sound of my voice and you're saved this morning, you ought to be a preacher. That's simple. He says in verse 15, how, how, how beautiful are the feet 
of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now that's speaking truth and showing forth righteousness, being led by the Spirit of God. You know, God doesn't th- look at things like we do. I never wear sandals because I got the ugliest feet in the world. I don't know what's wrong. I got that fungus among us, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, you, some of you, I, I envy some of you gals that, you know, I mean, you guys, people must make a fortune off the toenail painting that they do. I see little flags on your toenails. I see little bugs painted, not real ones. You know, I see little multicolors. I mean, I mean, can you imagine? You know, when I go to, when I go to Walmart to get the water, they have a toenail place there, or a pedicure, or pedophile, or whatever it's called, you know, place. And, 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 and they, they got all these little oriental people in there. And they got masks on, you know, and they're, they get, and these women up there got, look like Fred Flintstone feet sticking up on these things, man. And these, these women are painting them. I mean, they're painting them. I mean, like they're doing a Michelangelo artwork on the Sistine Chapel, you know. They're painting them suckers. We, we do everything we can to make what normally doesn't look very pleasing, our feet, better. I mean, if I had my toenails painted, I could just take them off and leave them and pick them back up when I'm going back out. I mean, we do so much because, honestly, our feet is probably the in most cases, the ugliest part of our body. I mean, you know, you say, I mean, when your guy took you out for the first time, he said, I love your hair. Your eyes are just, God, I like the, you know, man, they're blue, man. It just makes everything. Oh, your face, that cute little nose you got. And you never heard anybody say, you got the nicest feet I ever saw in my life. Just doesn't work that way. And, you know, we try to cover up, and in most cases, you know, uh, we don't like, uh, you know, I, I understand. Back in the Old Testament, they used to do foot washing. I realize why the church don't do it today. I get it. I really do. You'd be wearing more than a mask. You'd be having goggles with, you know, flaps on You can close those suckers, a welder's mask or something. But it, it always struck me that the, the thing that we look at and is probably the most unattractive, or, or, or can be the most unattractive part of our body, our feet. God says when you preach the gospel, that's the most beautiful part of your body. Because it's carrying forth the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. He doesn't care how big they are. He doesn't care how small they are. He doesn't care if they're double, triple, E, wide, wide. He doesn't care if your toenails are yellow, green, purple. He doesn't care if they're all gone. It doesn't matter to him. He looks at the feet that clears the gospel, that carries forth the righteousness, that declares his son. Look at the last part of verse 17. I'm tired of being gross now. I won't talk about it anymore. <clears throat> but a false witness deceit. Now, these false witnesses are throughout the Bible, and you, as you well know, they're throughout life. Moses had them. Job had them. Joseph had them. There was false witnesses at Stephen's death in Acts 7 that got him killed. And, you know, in uh, Matthew 26, verse 60, there was plenty of them there at the crucifixion of Christ. 
But to you and me, Jesus says in Acts 1.8, ye shall be witnesses unto me. That's a righteous witness. Now that puts every preacher, Bible teacher, theologian, and Christian in the position of being a false witness if he preaches or teaches contrary to the New Testament teachings. And under that heading, you would find the people that today stand up in a pulpit and they preach post-millennialism. The fact that, uh, that they're going to clean the world up and Christ is going to come back instead of what the Bible teaches about premillennialism. You'd find, uh, along with that, the people who teach all amillennialism. That's a false witness. The fact that there's no literal kingdom to come in, it's a spiritual kingdom. This would be the people who teach Reformation theology, better known as Calvinism. This would be all the whole crowd that peeps, teaches baptism regeneration for salvation, and there's tons of them. This would be the charismatic movement. It would be the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons. It would be the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, and even many, many Baptist churches. It would be unity. In the world, it would be socialism and communism. They're a false witness to the things of the Bible. It would be education that teaches evolution. It would be the the scientists who reject creation and think that it all happened through the Big Bang Theory. It'd be in Christianity or the world. It'd be those who accept the you know, teachings of Freud or Huxley or Kant or Menzinger, all of those great philosophers that the world holds in such high esteem, which the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, is a warning for, for the church. There's two warnings for the church in the Bible, one of them about philosophers, the other one about science falsely so-called. And the verse says, but a false witness, deceit. These false witnesses will deceive you. Now look at verse 18. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. Words that are untrue that come out of the lips of a false witness are like the cutting of a sword. It pierces you. It hurts you. It's intended to wound you. It's intended to do damage to you or your reputation. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, you find a prophetic passage there talking about the Lord Jesus after the crucifixion. It's an incredible passage. And uh, it's dealing with the false witnesses that were against him that led up to his crucifixion. And in Zechariah 13, 6, it's somebody talking to somebody. Obviously, it's the Lord he's talking to. And it says... And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now that's a prophetic verse about Jesus. The Bible says he came unto his own and his own received him not. The wounds he received, he received in the house of his friends, the nation of Israel. He came as their Messiah, He came to help them. Many believed on him, but the scribes and the Pharisees turned the people against him. And as I said in John 1.11, it says, It came unto his own, and his own received him not. And they're the ones, the ones that should have been his friends, the ones that said they were looking for a Messiah, were the ones that wounded him. Not only is that a great prophetic chapter, but it's a great practical application too because as you probably well know, many times it will be the people who claim to be your friends who will hurt you the most and try to do the most damage, cut you with the sword of their tongues. 
And let me be clear about this sword here, because I don't want any confusion. This is not the sword of, of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This is not the sword of, of that uh, cuts, you know, uh, the joints and the marrow. Uh, this sword here is not the sword of the Word of God. This here is the sword of the devil's sword. It's used by wicked people. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, uh, you find about the things that are an abomination to the Lord. And the last one is sowing discord among the brethren. That's a false witness coming out of somebody's mouth like a sword that cuts people up. No, no, no. This sword is forged and wedded with malice and, and hatred. It's based on a wicked man's attitude of heart. It's tempered with jealousy. It's tempered with envy and slander and false witness and slanderous behind your back talk. No, no, this is not the Lord's sword. It will cut you, your family, to pieces and try to leave you bloody. This is the sword of the devil, the sword of the wicked man that will out of his wicked heart bear false witness against you. And one of the great things about it is, is you find that the devil, I've said it all the time, he counterfeits Christ in everything. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, when the Lord comes back at the second coming of Christ, the Bible says a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth by which he shall smite the nation. That sword is the word of God. Here you have the devil's sword, which comes out of his mouth, but it smites you, the people. Look at the last part of verse 18. But the tongue of the wise is health. Now that's spiritual health. Words of God will be health to you when you start to use them and put them into your life. Jeremiah chapter 46 verse 11, one of the great verses in the Bible, talks about the balm of Gilead. And the balm of Gilead, you know, Gilead was east of Jordan and it was a very rich at a very fruitful uh, part of the country. It was a great place and a source of comfort. And in Gilead, they had all kinds of spices that came off of trees and alloys that came from fruit, fruit and all those things. And one of the things that came was a bomb, a salve that they made, a medicine. It was called the bomb of Gilead. And they actually exported it as medicine. And you read several times in the Bible that about a bomb in Gilead, and that bomb to heal the nation of Israel. And that bomb of Gilead is a type of the Word of God. It shows you that the words of the Lord will help man to heal. You know, I know that you, we all go through tough times in life. Some of them very unfair. Some of them we deserve, and, you know, but it still hurts. Some of it we don't deserve, and it, it really hurts. But I've seen people all my life get mad at God and mad at the church or mad at this or mad at that, and they, they take one crayon out of their coloring box, black, and the rest of their life they color Christianity with that dark color. And that's because you've been hurt inside. I get it. I understand it. And I realize it. And I've had people say, you know, I don't go to church because I got burned at a church one time and I'm never going back to church again. I understand that. I get it. And I'm sympathetic for you. But I got to also tell you, that's pretty dumb. I mean, I would never, you go to a restaurant and you get a terrible meal. We went to a Mexican restaurant here that opened up in Lee Summit a while back. It was the worst place you had ever been in your life. The food was cold. It was late. The waitress was on drugs. It was terrible. It was supposed to be one of the best Mexican restaurants on the planet. And it was absolutely terrible. 
and worse yet, we waited an hour and a half to eat something that was this bad. The food was terrible. The service was terrible. She couldn't get it right. She got pictures of people's food mixed up. She didn't have everything on it. Uh, you know, it was one of those things where finally the manager came over. This is a true story. The manager came over. He apologized and he says, your meal is on us tonight. He says, there's no way. He says, I realize that some of you didn't even eat all of your food. And there's no charge for this tonight. I just hope that you'll come back. And we're going to comp you on this meal. And we had, must have been, it was somebody's birthday. We must have had 12, 15 people there. And we'd got the whole meal free. And all the way out laughing, boy, that was a great meal. <laughs> we sure pulled it over on him. Just tell it's bad, they'll give it to you free. Let's go someplace else and do that with dessert. No, it was bad. <laughs> but you know what? I, could, I don't know how many restaurants I've eaten in since that place. Probably half of them Mexican. In other words, just because I had one bad experience here doesn't mean that all restaurants are that way. Just because you have one bad experience in church doesn't mean all churches are that way. But I get where you're at. You got hurt. You got busted. You got broken. But my word to you is, you need the bomb of Gilead. You need to heal. You need to let the word of God do what it does. Help man to heal. The Bible is a book of medicine. Proverbs is a book of medicine for the spirit of man. I mean, how many of you, when you came in here, your marriages were on the rocks. And you know what God did through the word of God? He healed it. Busted relationships, they get healed. Your children, your family gets healed. You get restored to the fellowship of the brethren because it heals. It'll cure the blindness of spiritual blindness of not being able to see. It'll soften a hardened heart and make it soft. It will heal and overcome our anxiety. It will heal and overcome our depression. It will heal and overcome our loneliness. It will heal and overcome our strongholds. I, I can't even talk about this without thinking about our little Victoria up there in, uh, in Lincoln. Now, here's a girl that, you know, that, uh, I mean, I don't even know what to say about her. Uh, she's one of the sweetest little kids we've ever met in our lives, and yet she was forsaken by everybody. The church she went to dumped her. Her friend dumped her. She got a, a terrible illness because of going on the mission field and everybody misdiagnosed it. Everybody wanted to blame her. I mean, you talk about anybody that for a short three or four years, I'm sure it was a lot longer than that in her mind, but it ever went through something close to what Job went through as far as his suffering, it was her. Her friends forsook her, her pastor forsook her, the church forsook her. She was dating a guy who was a pastor at one church and he just up and forgot her and left her and moved on. All of her friends quit calling I mean, at the time she needed everybody most, everybody left. And I understand why she got the way that she did, and her mom and dad, they, they said to themselves, you know what, if this is Christianity, I don't want any part of it. I get it. And she actually walled up and closed the doors, man, and it was, it was like going up to an armored truck and trying to beat the door to get in. I understand people like that. I understand that she, it was hurt and it was bad. And when she needed people most, nobody was there. But look at her today. 
She's one of the finest young ladies. She loves the Lord. She's listening online. She comes down and now about every month to church here. We go up there. Up there, she's she's turning around. She's feeling better. And somebody would say, "Wow, what happened? What? Only one thing happened. It's the only thing that happened. But it's a thing that needs to happen in everybody's life. It wasn't no great miracle. It was no great. We're better than anybody else. It was simply we have a bomb from Gilead, and when you apply it to someone's wounds, it heals them." That's all. It's all that it is. I, I look at the people that in the few that we, like I talked about uh, the other night, we were here. That's all they need. They just need the bomb of Gilead. They need, they need the healing in their hearts, in their spirits, in their souls. They need the healing that only comes from the Word of God. They can go to the Veterans Administration and nothing against the Veterans Administration, but they can go there the rest of their life and they may get their wounds showed up and they may get their their wounds uh, fixed as far as the physical, but they will never get what they need applied to their wounded spirit. And that's the Word of God. And that's our job. Proverbs 12, 25 says, Heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop. You bet it does. That's depression right there. Your heart stoops. It goes to the bottom. Heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. That good word is the word of God. See? Proverbs 25, 25 says, It's cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. You get out there in this old hot, dusty, dirty old world where there's nothing for you and nothing satisfies, and you're like a man on the Sahara Desert that hadn't had a good cold drink of water uh, for a long time, and then somebody shows up and gives you the purest, cleanest water you ever had in your life, and it refreshes you, it gives you your strength back, it quenched your thirst, you're good to go, and you say, where did that water come from? And he looks up and says, it came from a far country. It came from the Lord. It came from the Lord. But when you have this bomb of Gilead, you have to do a couple of things with it. First of all, you have to apply the medicine. And the second thing, after you apply it, you've got to follow directions on the bottle. It won't fix your marriage. It won't fix your family. It won't fix a wife or a husband. Not unless you follow the directions. When I was about 12, 13, 14 years old, I had a strep throat for about three months. Keep going back to the doctor. And you know why? Because I get really bad and really a sore throat, and I go to the doctor. He'd put me on some antibiotics, and I'd take them, give me like a week and a half of antibiotics. I'd take them for three or four days. They tasted bad back then. And as soon as I started feeling better, I quit taking the medicine. And so I had a relapse. And he did it again. I did the same exact thing. And I got it again. He did it again. I did the same exact thing. Finally, I realized that the reason why I was keep getting, going back to my relapse, to my strep throat, is that I wasn't following the directions. It said, take two of these a day for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I was doing it till I felt better. And you know, that's exactly what a lot of God's people do with the bomb of Gilead. You've worked with them. You've helped them. You started to disciple them. You started to work with them. They come in, they're busted, they're broken, they're oh, wham, 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 I'm this, I'm that, I'm hurting, I'm down, da, da, da. So you start to put the salve on. You start to rub it in and you start to massage it in and get it going into the pores and going into the bloodstream. And suddenly they start feeling better. And as soon as they start feeling better, 
they're done with the bomb of Gilead. And then six weeks later, two months later, a year later, they're right back in the same mess they were in before. It's just that simple. People stop taking the medicine, or start taking it, but as soon as they all start feeling better, they quit taking the meds and are right back in the problem they have. Or, I've seen this, people are complaining all the time. I don't mind people who complain, because I complain. But I, people who complain when, they, when the reason and the answer to their problem is right in front of them, I have a tough time with. I have people all the time saying, I have a killing, splitting headache. And I'll say, have you taken anything for it? No. Well, then enjoy it. <laughs> That's my advice to you. Enjoy it. Well, I mean, what's the point? When, when, when Kelly was a little girl, she, when she would hurt her hand, twist her arm, she did it something doing one leg, uh, you know, for the next week she walked, I mean, it wasn't broken, it wasn't bad, but for the next week she walked around the house like this. <laughs> you know, it's like she, <sighs> and I talk to people all the time, uh, you know, I'm really, 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 you know, there's a lot of people who simply die because they won't go to a doctor. There's some generation, especially the older, there's a lot of the younger generation. They just think, well, I'm not going. And when they finally do go, way too late. You got a first sign of something ain't right? Be proactive about it. You know what? Spiritually, it's the same thing. Don't let it get out of control. That person, I'll say, well, man, my kid is just killing me, man. Ah, just killing me. Well, have you taken anything for it? No, 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 no. Get out of here, man. I don't know how many times I've seen people talk about the fact, well, I'm, I'm this, and I'm going through that, and I'm going through this. And you know what? The cure is laying right on the shelf next to their bed. Oh, I'm hurting. Oh, I had this happen. Oh, I don't know what's happening. Oh, it's so terrible. Oh, it's so bad. What am I going to do? The medicine. Take the medicine. And stay following the directions. You don't come to church for three or four weeks and then you get feeling better and go back out and do your own thing. You don't come for six months and then simply say, well, I'm better now. I can handle it on my own. You can't handle it on your own. Now, the guy one time, he, he was down in a dump because he was diagnosed legitimately with a particular problem that he had to be on meds for the rest of his life. And he doesn't like like most people, I don't like to take any more medicine than I have to take. But he didn't want to take this at all because he thought it made a, a stigma on him that he had to be on these drugs to handle his problem. And he was down in the dumps about it. And I told him, I said, you know what? I got the exact same problem. He said, you got what I got? And I said, I got it worse than you got. And I listed off about 20 terrible things that I have in my life if I don't take the meds every day. I'm stuck with the medicine of God, taking it on a daily dosage the rest of my life. And so are you. And you know what? When you have high cholesterol and they give you a cholesterol medicine and you don't take it and you go to the doctor and he says, your cholesterol is 9,443. What are you doing? You're not taking the medicine. 
Now, when you have all kinds of struggles in life and you have all kinds of problems in life and you're a Christian and you come into me and you say, well, it's this, it's that, I can't get ahead on this and I'm down and done about this and this is falling apart and this isn't working, this isn't working. The answer is simple. You're not taking the medicine. Why, God gave it to us. Verse 19. The lip of truth shall be established forever. But a lying tongue is but for a moment. Oh, this is, a, this is an incredible verse, I think. Now, this verse deals with time and how God looks at time and what we say and do and his time frame and his concept of time or eternity, maybe. And it says, the lip of truth shall be established forever. Now, there's a depth of this verse that most people will never see or probably understand. It's the eternal statement, or excuse me, the eternal state and impact of what we say for the Lord, our words. And the lip of truth shall be established two ways in God's time. One will be at the judgment seat of Christ. The other will be at the great white throne judgment. That Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 89, that the word of God is settled in heaven. His words are eternal. They're forever. And when you give them out, it has an eternal effect. Those who preach it, sow it, put it out, believe it, teach it, it will come back to you. It's eternal. It's the only thing in this world that lasts forever. Ecclesiastes 11.1 1 says, Cast thy bread upon the water, for thou shalt find that after many days. It's going to show up later, because it's eternal. Just like the book's eternal, settled in heaven. And it, the words that you and I speak about the righteousness of God, will have an everlasting impact on people you give it to. That's why a couple of weeks ago I told you about Job 26, 4, about the six questions God's going to ask the judgment seat of Christ. The last two were, uh, to whom hast thou spoken words and whose spirit came from thee? Man. In many respects, the judgment seat of Christ will be a grand hallelujah day for the saints of God. I mean, the trials of this old world are now gone. The darkness of this world is broken into the morning, sun, morning sunrise of the Lord coming back. And the joy of our being with the Lord and our pilgrimage and our sojourn on this earth is now over. The great reunion with the loved ones that went on before us. The great satisfaction of finally you and I see it all and now we know it all. As to what God was doing and the thrill to know that in this physical, messed up, earthly body. We had enough presence of mind to get into the mind of God and just figure out enough of it to get us through that day. Oh, man. And I'm sure there will be people who in their excitement want to grab you and take you to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you see it on TV all the time. Somebody's trapped in a burning house and somebody's walking their dog and walking by and they hear somebody crying and screaming upstairs. They can't get out. He forsakes his own safety, runs in that burning house, go up there and grabs them people, leads them out. And when Channel 9 gets there, she's saying, he saved me. He saved my baby. And he said, over there, I really didn't do anything. I just was walking by and the house was on fire and I just went in and got him. I'm not really a hero. She says, oh, you are, you are. 
Car blows up on the freeway, catches in the flames, and a, a truck driver pulls up behind, runs out, and a guy's in there. He can't get his safety belt off to get out of the seat belt off, so he gets in there, opens it up, drags the guy to safety. He's a hero. When the key, key shammers show up, the guys are going to say, well, tell us how you did this great act. And, oh, you're a true hero. Why, you're an unselfish act. The car could have blown up. You, you got out of your truck. You ran over. You could have just as easily stood by and not did anything, but you acted and you saved that person. Well, hey, I'm telling you, man. There's going to be people at the judgment seat of Christ with this excitement, and we all get up there, and it's all a great time, and we're all f- praising the Lord. I mean, it's going to be a hallelujah time. It ain't going to be like most church services where you just sit around with your arms crossed. It's going to be a shouting match. You're out of this world. You're home with him. And yeah, you may have the judgment seat of Christ to go through, but brother, you're out of this old world, and you're wherever going to be with him. And just like somebody's excited about you pulled them out of their burning house and somebody's excited about you pulled them out of the burning car, there's going to be people going to be excited because you pulled them out of a burning hell by preaching his righteousness. And I believe it with everything that someone will come over and grab you and bring you over to the Lord and say, Oh, Lord, Lord, I was struggling, and I was down in the dumps, and I was thinking life is empty and worthless. And I want you to know, Lord, this faithful servant, this man, this woman that you saved, they came and they loved my soul, and they invested their life with me, and they took me in. They gave me my Bible. They discipled me. They taught me. They encouraged me. They helped me in all them and know what they did through you for my family. The lips of truth shall be established forever. What a great day. Why, in some of God's people's lives, that line will be a mile long. Billy Sunday died. New York Times reporter they had his body lay in state in Madison Square Garden. A New York Times reporter recorded the event, and he said in three days, three million people filed by that open casket. And he says, as I stood there, almost everybody said, if it wasn't for that man's ministry, I'd be in hell today. If it wasn't for that man's ministry, I wouldn't have my family. I wouldn't have my health. I wouldn't have my sanity. That man told me about the Lord one after one after one. Can you imagine getting to the judgment seat of Christ with a record of a man who preached God's righteousness of over three million people wanting to grab him and take him to the Lord and say to the Lord, you know what? And I know God knows who did it. But just the excitement of the fact that somebody cared enough about you. Now, there's a lot of ungratefulness that goes on in the world today, and there's a lot of ungratefulness that goes on in Christianity. Not on that day. You'll see clearly now. You'll understand it all. Right now, we look through a glass darkly, but then face to face, and you'll realize that somebody paid a price for you to have what you have today. What a glorious day. Or, what a shameful day. 
What a day that will be when we're standing there in the midst of the rapture that just happened and people are screaming and yelling and thanking God and I'm out of that mess and suddenly they realize that there's the guy who witnessed to me. There's the guy that discipled me. There's the person that invested their life with me. And they run over and grab that and the people in a fury grabbing everybody and running to find Jesus. You're standing there all by yourself. Nobody comes to get you. Because you invested your life with nobody. You stand there and watch your own wife run by you and go to somebody else. Because you never one time opened that book to do anything with her in the Word of God. You watch your husband run by and go to somebody else because of the fact that you never, never were the encouragement or whatever and had nothing spiritual. You watch your own kids run past you, say, hi, Dad, and run for the person. Because you never discipled that kid. You never spent any time with him in the Word of God with that kid. You did absolutely nothing for them. All of your life, it was somebody else doing your job. Don't send somebody else to do what God has called you to do. I think it'll a lot be like Genesis 19. Remember when Lot got told by the angels that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And he said, you get your family and you get, you get out of here because we're going to destroy this place. And old Lot got into a panic. And he got his backed up the station wagon and started loading in the thing. And he says, finish this up. I'm going over to our kid's house and I'm going to tell them. And he ran over to that house and knocked on the door about 2 o'clock in the morning. And they open the door and he says, we got to get out. We got to go. We got to get out of here. God's going to destroy this city. It's time to get out. The Bible says they looked at him and laughed at him as one as mocked. They thought to themselves, of the last person on the planet that would have a message from God would be my dad. Oh, boy. That day will be the glorious morning of our redemption, or that day will be the terror of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.11. Know therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I'm trying my best to persuade you this morning. Then will be the great white throne. The people who are lost for all of eternity. As they begin to give their excuses and the reason for their rejection of God's righteousness over their own righteousness. You and me, the faithful witnesses, will come forth to be the witnesses against them. And all the words that out of your righteous mouth will now have been moving through time and space will roll right in to that throne room. And they'll hear every witness. They'll hear every sermon. They'll hear everything that anybody ever said to them about the righteousness of God. And the whole assembled universe will hear the righteous words that tell of the life of Jesus Christ, the Savior, and His righteousness. A Savior that they rejected and substituted their own self-righteousness for His perfect righteousness. Oh, the power of words. The power of how we use words and its eternal effect. Daniel 7 verses 9 through 10 says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down 
and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. And the judgment was set, and the books were opened. Daniel 7.22 says, Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. The time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. See that thing? The great white throne judgment, it's the saints who do the judging. Because you were the righteous witness. That person's going to get up and he's going to start to alibi his way and all God's going to do is say, hey, come over here and those words are going to roll in and you're going, to be the, you're going to be the witness against them. Look at the last part of verse 19. Here's a good thing for you. But the lying tongue is for but a moment. Time. What incredible study in the Bible. Time versus eternity. One of the hardest concepts to grasp. A place where time is everything and then a place where time means nothing. Now, doctrinally, all this deals with the Antichrist and the seven years of tribulation and the suffering of Israel just being likened to a moment to Christ coming and establishes the kingdom, doctrinally. The sword and the fake sword of the fake Christ, you know, connected, contrasted to the one, the Lord's Christ, and the real sword and second coming of Christ, doctrinally. But, oh, there's a great practical lesson here. He's showing that man's existence of 7,000 years, from Genesis chapter 1 to the second coming of Christ, compared to God's eternity is only a moment of time with God. You know, that's why you never care about the consequences of being the witness, because it's just a second in God's timetable. doesn't mean anything. When we don't get into the Bible and we lose our perspective and we think this life is so important with all the things that we have and all the things that we do, our life is nothing more than just three score and ten, the Bible says, and then it's over. Yet the Bible says that man's life is just a wisp of smoke. It's just, James says, it's like a vapor that appeared for a little while, then fadeth away. (laughs) I heard a story one time. A guy was having a conversation with God, and he says, God, he says, What's a million years like to you? And God says, a million years to me just like a minute. He says, man, Lord, I don't understand that. He says, well, it is. He says, well, Lord, let me ask you this. He says, what's a million dollars like to you? God says, a million dollars to me is like a penny, nothing. Guy was a Baptist, thought for a few minutes, and he said, Lord, can I have a penny? <laughs> Lord, book bags, I sure can. In a minute. <laughs> Time. You hear me talk about perspective and contrast and understanding and perception. For the child of God, it's the understanding that this life, compared to the plan of God and His eternal plan, find out your part in God's great plan for man that only takes, it's only a moment in this eternal process of God's plan for man. And the haters and the backbiters and the slanders and the false witnesses, they're just passing like a second. I'll be the first to tell you I don't completely understand the aspect of eternity completely. There's so much to it. 
the depth of it all beyond human comprehension. I get it. You got time, you got the ages of ages, you got eternity. Boy, it can get confusing. But I understand enough about it to know this. This life down here right now, my three score and ten, is nothing to compare with what God has for us in eternity. This life is just a vapor. It's a fleeting shadow. And yet God's people will trade in eternity with Christ and a reign with Him for just a wisp of smoke and a fleeting shadow that pass so quickly compared to the eternity that lasts forever. Power of words. The power to use words. You use it to lift and build up people and put forth God's righteousness. Or you use it as a sword to destroy and tear down God's people by being a false witness. Proverbs is one of the greatest books that you'll ever get into. And this is one of the great practical lessons that continues on with what comes out of our mouth based on our heart. We'll hold up there. Now, those that want to go